coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. This switch kind of uh, lives off how healthy your mitochondria are. If your mitochondria aren't so healthy, then the switch can, can be, cause a lot more damage. So you can show this switch, for example, in people. It's much easier if you give a, a slug of fructose to a person who's already overweight and insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. You'll see a huge effect. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you give it to a 20-year-old who's super athlete, you aren't going to. So like the sugar industry likes this. And they know this. <laughs> they know who to target. They love to do their studies in 18 to 20-year-old college kids who mm. are like really healthy. And that, that way they can argue that sugar doesn't do anything. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Dr. Richard Johnson. Dr. Johnson is a practicing physician, clinical scientist, and a world expert on sugar and its role in health. He has authored three books on sugar and its health effects. His most recent book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, details his group's discovery of a switch that controls obesity and how it can be turned on and off. We discussed the reason for our biological survival switch, fructose's role in weight gain, what foods trigger fat storage, is black coffee healthy, and should you drink artificial sweeteners? I really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Richard Johnson. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Dr. Richard Johnson. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Brian. It's uh, great to be on your show. (laughs) Yeah, great to have you. Yeah. I feel like I know you. I've seen you on a bunch of different, uh, some of my friends' podcasts and uh, got your book right here, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, for people watching on YouTube. Uh, And we're going to dive into that. Uh, I know you're out in Colorado and you're a professor. Maybe give the audience a little bit of a background of, you know, what you've been up to and obviously other than writing a book and uh, just so they get a little background. So I'm a physician first and I have a pretty active practice. I work at the university. I'm a professor, Uh, but I've also been doing a lot of research. I mean, I am a research-aholic and I mean that. I really have uh, been studying and getting grants and from the National Institute of Health. And I've been working on the etiology or the the cause of obesity and diabetes. I've been working on it for over 25 years. Um, And we've done a lot of the uh, the key work on how sugar works. And our group was one of the first ones to show that sugar works independently of calories way back in 2005. Uh, We also, you know, have, you know, so I'm kind of an expert on sugar and especially the component fructose. I've written a couple books before. This was, this though is my great book that summarizes um, all the breakthroughs that we've been involved in and others in trying to figure out the cause of obesity. And the exciting part of it was the discovery that there's an actual biological switch that can be activated by animals as well as by us. And it doesn't just make us gain fat, it also makes us insulin resistant and hypertensive and all these things. 
So it was, it was originally meant to be a survival pathway uh, that animals used when, to protect them when there's no food around. Mm-hmm. And we have activated this switch. And so that's why I say it's nature wants us to be fat because there's an actual uh, biologic process in nature to help us gain fat when we need to be fat. Unfortunately, we do not need to be fat today, <laughs> uh, you know. And so we've activated the switch unwittingly. But what's great is uh, now that we know that there is a switch and that how it works, it actually can be a big insight into uh, how to keep, keep yourself healthy and if you're overweight, how to lose the weight. And one of the great things, Brian, is that the discovery of this switch suddenly explains also why all these different diets work, why intermittent fasting work, why low-carb diets work, why low-fat diets uh, tend not to work. And we, you know, so it's, uh, it's given a lot of insights into, you know, what's going on. Uh, and at the same time, it's provided new, new breakthroughs in terms of uh, things that we didn't know about that could cause obesity. So that's, yeah. that's it. Yeah, no, I love it. I love all your research you've done. And the book is great. Uh, You know, one of the things that you mentioned is this survival switch. Why don't we touch on some of the main components that activate the survival switch um, and cause us to, you know, put on body fat um, as a mechanism of survival? Well, the first thing is to realize that there is a biological switch. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when people say to you, oh, you know, you're gaining weight because, you know, you're just eating too much. You're, you're taking a second portion of food. You know, you're, you're not exercising enough. That's sort of true. You are eating more uh, generally. And, you, you know, people are eating more and they're exercising less. So that part is true. But that's not mm-hmm. what's causing the obesity. What's causing the obesity is that we've activated hormones and a whole biology, a whole biology to actually gain weight. And, and what this switch is, so just to define what the switch is, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's a biologic churning on uh, where you want to gain, you, you, normally animals will regulate their weight. If they eat too much one day, they'll eat less the next. If they run too hard one day, They'll rest the next. They kind of keep in balance. They, they maintain the weight in a very, very, very regulated way. If you take, if you go into the wild and you capture a squirrel. Oh, don't tell you, me about that. My dog yeah, squirrel you, the other day. That was the one that's, bo- <laughs> one that's bothering you and you catch it and you say, okay, I'm going to make you fat. And you just force him to eat by, you know, putting a tube in its throat or whatever you terrible thing you do. Anyway, if they gain weight, then you stop that, they go right back to the normal weight. Uh, if, you, if you take away their food, put them in a cage, and if you're really mean and you take away their food, I don't recommend doing that. But if you do and they lose the weight, you let them out, they're going to go right back to the weight, and their normal weight. Not only will they go back to their normal weight, they'll go back to their normal weight for that time of year. So if you uh, take them in July where they have really normal weight, uh, and you, and then uh, you let them recover in September. They're going to go to the weight they want to be at in the fall. And a lot of animals will will gain weight in the fall because they know winter's coming. Right, and and, and uh, humans are the same way, right? Like we, like a, yeah. You know, oh, oh gosh, yes. 
body set there's, weight, there's, right? Absolutely. There's studies in humans showing that during the winter, we tend to pack up and eat more. Um, yes. And, and uh, there, there are people studying this. And it also kind of depends where you live. Like, it's slightly different if, if you live in the Arctic versus if you live in the tropics. But in general, there's, um, there's this sh uh, change in weight related somewhat to the availability of foods and, and things like that. But um, anyway, so, uh, so we regulate weight. And actually, there's studies that show that humans used to regulate weight very well uh, before the days of Western diet. Right. And, uh, and then what happens is uh, when you activate the switch, you uh, stay hungry. So if you eat food, it won't completely satisfy you. So you'll keep eating more. And at the same time, you drop your energy metabolism. So you spend less energy, but you spend the, the less energy you spend is at rest. So if you're out foraging for food, you still can keep your energy to find the food. But as soon as you sit down to eat it, you'll actually drop your energy metabolism. Or you'll, you'll drop your, your metabolic rate. And that way you spend less energy so that you'll tend to accumulate weight as well. So it's all to accumulate weight. And then the, it stimulates fat production. It blocks the burning of fat. Um, it raises your blood pressure. This switch uh, makes you... Uh, stimulates uh, foraging in the brain, so you're, you're looking for food, you're thirsty. Um, you know, it, it causes this thing called insulin resistance. That's actually part of the foraging response. And what happened, and this switch, what happens is um, when you become insulin resistant, you can't, your skeletal muscle, your muscle doesn't take up as much glucose because it uh, becomes resistant to insulin. So the glucose builds up in the blood, and you know we, if it gets too high, it's terrible. It's called diabetes. But what happens is it goes up just a little bit, and then the brain doesn't really. A lot of the brain doesn't need insulin, so it takes up the the glucose. So it helps provide the fuel for the brain, so that you uh, you're you're preferentially saving the glucose for your brain as as opposed to your muscle. And that, of course, is, is good if you don't have much food around. You'd like to make sure that your brain's working so that you can find food and do all the things you need to do. So the switch, is it's like a biologic process. And, and all these things are going on at the same time. It starts storing fat in your liver and all these things. And that's all part of this biologic switch. And what it, the reason for the switch is uh, so that animals can accumulate fat uh, so that they can survive a, a period of time when there's no food. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so animals will trigger this like in the fall before they hibernate or before they, or birds will uh, do this before they migrate, both in the spring and in fall migration. They will, they will do this beforehand to, to gain the fat so that they don't have to stop when they're flying over the ocean. If you flying over an ocean... <laughs> Yeah, you don't you, want to run out of food. You're in trouble yeah. if you well, run know, out of food. I know in your book you mentioned the hummingbird. Yeah, the hummingbird. The yeah. hummingbird will migrate too, you know. Uh, we don't think of hummingbirds as migrating, but some of them do. And even butterflies, the monarch butterfly, will mm. actually store fat and get, try to get across the gulf uh, to its nesting homes in, uh, in Mexico. And even, I mean, other things like locusts that fly across the Strait of Gibraltar 
do it. And, and basically, it's, it's a process all animals use, basically. It's really And, and what are they eating? I mean, it's, it's central. And so it's, it's like part of evolution. It's like a natural instinct. You know, mm -hmm. there's an instinct that if you, the animal senses that there's not going to be food, uh, and so it will, it will activate this switch. And the question, you know, so when we, the, the first thing we discovered was that there was a switch. And right. one of the incredible things is there was this thing called metabolic syndrome. And people had already realized that if you're fat, you tend to have high triglycerides in your blood. You tend to have abdominal obesity because uh, that's a great place to store fat. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and your blood pressure tends to be high. And you tend to be insulin resistant. And it got called the metabolic syndrome. And everyone says, well, it, there is this thing called metabolic syndrome, but it's not really important because what really we should be looking at each individual characteristic. And if your triglycerides are high, you need this medicine. If your blood pressure is high, you need this. But no one was really thinking of, yeah, you know, this cluster of signs, that's exactly what an animal does too in the wild. That's what a bear does before it, gets, it hibernates. It becomes insulin resistant and hypertensive and all these kinds of things. Right. So what, what's, uh, what's interesting is that this is a switch. It's a part of, a, it's a whole mechanism. And that, that was what kind of started the whole thing. And then we started saying, you know, okay, what triggers the switch? How does it work? Well, uh, based yeah. on, yeah, based, yeah, based on, you know, this survival switch that like you mentioned, animals have humans yeah. have it as well. I know in your book, you talk about some of the main things that drive that one of them, obviously being sugar and fructose, um, and purines and then alcohol, right. Are those, those, the main culprits that you find that, that make this switch go on? Yeah. So it turns out that there are various foods that we eat mm -hmm. that trigger it. And <clears throat> the first and foremost is sugar. Okay. If you want to know what triggers the switch, eat some sugar, I guarantee you're going to activate it. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. can. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when you're very young uh, and, and if you're, if your energy factor, you, so it works through the energy factories and we all have, you know, what makes us tick is that we make energy and we make the energy in these things called mitochondria. The, um, yep. these are little factories that are in each cell and they use oxygen and then churn out uh, energy, which is called ATP. And uh, that's what, how we do everything we do. So everything, uh, our conversation today is being driven by energy that we're spending. Even when you're thinking, you're spending energy. And uh, when we eat food, we're eating it to get energy. And the energy, you can think of it as two forms. There's a kind of an immediate energy, which is this ATP, and then there's stored energy. And stored energy is fat. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have enough ATP around, you can burn the, the fat to make ATP. So mm -hmm. the, the fat becomes a way to store energy. Normally, we get our energy from food, but if there's no food, you need that fat. Right. Okay, so, so <laughs> it turns out that sugar, you know, is a calorie, but it act, it's more than a calorie. It activates the switch. 
Right. And most calories, many calories do not activate the switch. If you eat broccoli, you're not going to activate the switch. You know, if you eat uh, a lot of, a lot of foods uh, do not activate the switch. Like if you have a piece of fish. Yeah, fish. I'm assuming you're not going to activate the Very little fish switch. activates the switch. Some kinds of fish do. One of the problems is it turns out to be good foods and bad foods it isn't just uh, carbs are all bad and proteins all good. Right. There are good proteins and bad proteins. There's good fats and bad fats. And then even the way, if you have a bad food, if you eat it the right way, it may not activate the switch. So it's really kind of a cool as we figured this out. But what? So you, it's possible to eat the, a cake without activating the switch. If you, and I can tell you how to do that if you want. I, well, I don't recommend you doing yeah. this regularly. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, uh, yeah. So what happens is when you eat sugar, sugar is table sugar is actually two types of carbohydrate. There's glucose and fructose, and they, they're bound together. And you should think of glucose as the main fuel for instant energy. It is the main fuel for instant energy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the main carb fuel, for sure. And then fructose is the main fuel for storing energy. That is, I mean, the animals use fructose to store energy. That is to make fat. And glucose is used to produce energy immediately. That's the way it works. Mm -hmm. Now, the two guys are together in sugar, and fructose is the sweeter of the two, and uh, so it gives, may, really makes that sugar sweet, which we love, right? We, we actually crave, a lot of people crave sweets. Not everyone, but a lot of people do. And, and that fructose is the key player that causes the activation of the switch. So when an animal wants to get fat, it'll eat a ton of fruit. Not, not a little bit of fruit, a ton okay. of fruit. Right. And, uh, and, and fruit turns out to be healthy for us because we're not eating a ton of fruit. I mean, Brian, if you if you ate ten apples in an hour, you're oh. going to activate the switch. It's yeah. going to cause fat, regard you know. But uh, right. one <laughs> apple is only a you know six seven grams of fructose. The first five grams gets inactivated in the gut. This is work done by a, a great scientist friend of mine, Josh Rabinowitz, and he found that there was a that the intestine really helps remove small amounts of fructose. So if you're, you're, you're worried about, ah, you know, this broccoli has one gram of fructose, forget it. Right. The gut is going to deactivate it. Same thing with like a, a fruit that has like four grams or five grams of fructose, it's not going to activate anything because it's going to get inactivated in the gut. And, all, now, and also an apple has mm -hmm. eight to 10 grams of fructose, and, uh, you know, and, and so you can get up there. If you eat figs, figs are like 20, 30 grams of fructose. Now you're yeah. activating. So it kind of makes a difference what kind of fruit you eat. But in general, natural fruits don't have a lot of fructose uh, compared to like a soft drink. A soft drink's got like 30 grams. Okay, you're going to activate the switch with a soft drink. It's going to cook you. You're going to be... Right. You know, so it's the drink. It's the, gonna say, I want to make fat. I want to make fat. It's the drinking of the fruit juices and the high. Oh yeah, fruit juice. Is, yeah. Might as well <laughs> drink sugar. Yeah, you know. Orange uh, juice, all those. Yeah, orange juice. Oh, I love orange juice. Isn't it good? When you taste <laughs> well, it, 
And then, you know, I mean, maybe you've learned. I've learned. I, I used you've to. You've learned. Day. I have too. I won't touch orange juice. I, yeah, well, I, I imagine. I, uh, I do, you know, I lived in Florida and, you know, they would give you this mm. fresh orange juice and it was so good. And I had to drink it really fast. So at breakfast, they would bring you a glass and it was gone in like one minute. And, uh, and I was activating the switch and I thought I was healthy, but it wasn't because, uh, you know, unfortunately we, we did studies with juice and we found that juice activates the switch. And it, it's interesting. We, we did a study with apple juice mm-hmm. and, uh, we gave, uh, this was done in Turkey with a friend of mine, Mamet Canby. And what he did was, uh, he gave a big, like a huge glass of apple juice. And he had people either sip it over like a couple hours mm-hmm. or drink it in five minutes. And there was a huge difference. And the reason is when you drink it fast, the concentration, you're getting a big slug of fructose right away. So it overcomes that intestine really easy. And you get this, the, 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 the liver feels this kind of flooding of fructose. And especially if you drink it on an empty stomach, boom. It gets there. And then, then it's the concentration of fructose that activates the switch. So if you take a large amount in a short period of time, that's the best way to maximize the switch, right? Mm. So you take an apple juice, is like, it's like a soft drink in the amount of fructose. And you drink it really fast. It's like, a, you know, like guzzling a drink on a tennis court. You are activating the switch. Bingo. Mm. No, no question. But if you sip it over two hours, so it's just kind of dribbling in. It's uh, you know, it's uh, you you just you know doing it very slowly. Uh, what happens is the concentration never really gets that high. So if you do activate the switch, it's just just a tiny bit. So the switch is like a dimmer. You know, you can blast it, hit it with a hammer. Or, or light. So fructose is, uh, and sugar, it's the number one way because fructose is the way that the switch is primarily activated. When you talk about um, activating the switch, are you pre- saying that like you're almost going to what's called like fat storage mode in yep. the sense that like if you guzzle a fruit juice and then after that you have a piece of broccoli, will, are you more prone to store that food as fat? Yeah, you are. So what happens is um, we all have glucose in our, yeah, so the fructose itself activates the switch. But the fructose, when you activate the switch, another thing happens too. Um, And uh, you start uh, finding ways to make fructose in your body as well. So, Mm. So the switch gets activated two major ways by eating sugar or fructose, high fructose corn syrup, or by your body making fructose. And actually when you activate the the switch with fructose, it also activates this process to make fructose. So when you're drinking, like if you drink a soft drink, there's fructose in it and glucose in it. So the fructose is really the bad guy initially because the glucose, if, it's, if you had just had small amounts of glucose in your body, it would, uh, it would just be to make energy. 
But what happens is when you activate the switch, it actually wants to also make fructose. And the way, there's only one way the body can make fructose, and that is from glucose. So the body can make fructose from glucose. So everybody has some glucose in their blood, but it particularly likes to make the fructose when your glucose levels go up a little bit. So if you eat high glycemic foods, like bread, rice, potatoes, chips. That activates the switch. Yeah, that will also activate the switch. And the glucose that goes in in the bagel, actually some of it gets converted to fructose. And how much it gets converted kind of depends on your overall health and so forth. So um, it turns out that um, if the glucose levels go up, it triggers the switch. So normally our blood glucose sits around 80 to 100. And some people, you know, can get up to 110, 120. Uh, and after a meal. Okay, yeah, we're back. We just lost you for a second. So we were talking about how high glycemic carbs activate the survival switch. Bread, bagels. I'm sure you're upsetting a lot of people when you when you say that. Um, yeah. Because is it because it's taking the the glucose and turning it into fructose? Is that what, is that part of the reason why? Yeah. So exactly. So normally, um, if you eat foods that don't really spike your glucose levels, they will tend not to activate the switch. But uh, if the glucose levels get high, uh, the body kind of senses that as a alarm signal and uh, starts to convert it to fructose. Um, You know, so maybe it thinks that the body, uh, you, you, you know, that there's something going on, uh, like maybe you're becoming insulin resistant. And so that's part of it. So p- when you become insulin resistant, the goal is to try to uh, store fat. So whatever the mechanism, uh, people, when the blood glucose goes up, uh, some of the glucose will get converted to fructose. And Interestingly, um, and then fructose activates the switch. Now, if your energy factories are really, really healthy, and you're like Brian, you're a pretty healthy guy. You exercise you. a lot. You, and so your, you know, your 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 blood vessels are dilated, and the endothelium, the lining is healthy, and uh, it takes more to activate your switch than it does um, a person who's overweight and 45 years old and overweight and is trying to lose weight. Um, And because, uh, you know, over time, the energy factories start to get injured. And one way they get injured is from recurrently activating the switch. Because when the, the way the switch works, it's pretty cool. The way the switch works is it, it works on the energy factories. And these are the, things making the ATP. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it causes oxidative stress to the energy factories. And that's kind of dampens them for a while. So they make a little bit less ATP. So the calories that are coming in get converted to fat as a alternative. So if they can't be used to make ATP, mm. they're kind of shunted over to stored fat or to stored energy, which is fat. So it's kind of... Um, crimps the, 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 the hose, so there's less ATP coming out of the mitochondria, but there's more, more of the calories are then going over to store as fat. But, uh, but if you have really healthy um, 
mitochondria, you don't dampen it as much. So it, it's so little, like if you're a super athlete and you eat a lot of fructose, it's very hard to show much of an effect because your mitochondria are just so healthy. They're just going to, I mean, and maybe they are producing a little bit less ATP, but you're not going to pick it up, uh, you know, in, in a normal kind of uh, day. Uh, you know, if you're doing the Tour de France, maybe. Uh, but anyway, the, um, uh, but what happens is over time, you keep hitting the mitochondria with sugar, um, the mitochondria will weather those and they start to get, they start to weaken. And, and so this is, you know, this is one reason why people who are 20 years old, they can drink a soft drink and they're not going to gain weight and they can run up and down the beach and do anything they want because they have healthy mitochondria. But as we get older, this repeated hitting, everybody kind of uh, has their tipping point at a different time, you know? So some people actually start gaining weight when they're teenagers mm. or even children, and they're probably flooding their system with like soft drinks and juice right. uh, early on in life. But others, you know, uh, you know, temper it, and, and so it happens at a later time point. But the this switch kind of uh, lives off how healthy your mitochondria are. If your mitochondria aren't so healthy, then the switch can can be, cause a lot more damage. So you can show this switch, for example, in people. It's much easier if you give a, a slug of fructose to a person who's already overweight and insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. You'll see a huge effect. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you give it to a 20-year-old who's super athlete, you aren't going to. So like the sugar industry likes this. And they know this. <laughs> they know who to target. They love right? to do their studies in 18 to 20-year-old college kids who mm. are like really healthy. And that, that way they can argue that sugar doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know in your book, you show <laughs> just the, how many pounds of sugar have the increase through the years in, in the US and in Europe, right? Um, what, what, off the top of your head, do you know that increase over the last? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So based upon, there's different uh, measurements. So um, one is to measure how much sugar disappears from uh, the market. Mm. And based on that, you can estimate how much sugar people are taking home. It doesn't mean exactly that you're eating that much, but in 1700, the average person would uh, theoretically was eating about four pounds of sugar a year. Mm. In 1800, it was 18 pounds a year. In 1900, it was 90 pounds of sugar a year. And by 1980 or so, it was 150 pounds of sugar per year. It peaked around 2005. And there's been a slight, slow reduction in sugar intake the last, uh, you know, and, and added sugars uh, like high fructose corn syrup. It's been drifting down the last 10 years or so, but not by much. And, that and actually, actually, if you look oh, at obesity rates, um, there are some studies that suggest obesity and diabetes are not going up at the same rate. They're kind of like slowing down. That's good. Um, and I think that, thank God for um, advertisements and people recognizing that sugar isn't that healthy. So there, a lot of younger people are aware of this. And, uh, uh, you know, so I... That this is really good news to me. That actually leads to another question of mine, which is artificial sweeteners. Uh, and, yeah, and, and this is like a question I get. And it's like, what is what is your thought on that? I know there's a lot of different ones out there, but that's been the, the, the theme with, you know, stevia and 
Um, obviously, we know about like aspartame, so, and then you have sugar alcohols as well. What's the role that they play? Yeah, I, so I, I actually uh, have studied this extensively. And um, so the very first thing is um, most artificial sugars do not activate the switch. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, some do. So there's one called sorbitol. It's mm-hmm. like in uh, syrups. Yep. When you get sugar-free syrup, take a look at what's on, in it. If it says sorbitol, that actually gets converted to fructose in the body. So that's not so good. Yeah. I, uh, there's I, another one called tagatose. Not very common, but it, it, it completely activates the switch. So there are some artificial sugars right off the bat. That, yeah, you know, yeah, syrup. Good. You, you're now, saying your book. Now, yeah. if you do give artificial sugars to an animal, they will not activate the switch and they will regulate their weight and they will stay normal weight. So this is the good part, okay? Um, There is one, uh, saccharin, which uh, causes the mildest insulin resistance when you give it to an animal. And it was shown in a nature paper to be working on the microbiome, the, the bacteria in the gut. But it didn't make the animals fat. It didn't, you know, it doesn't really, uh, it, it causes mild insulin resistance. But really, this, the artificial sugars do not activate the switch. So that's the good part. Now, there's a bad part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's two bad parts. The first one is that some of these artificial sugars um, have other problems with them. So uh, the biggest one is aspartame. Uh, which is like in diet, Coke and diet, Sprite. Uh, and aspartame, there's a, you know, actually it, it has a lot of bad metabolites. And, um, and there's some thought Sorry. that it can affect memory. And, and uh, there's studies where, you know, animals fed it have trouble getting through a maze. So in general, yeah. I don't recommend aspartame. Uh, and then, you know, so that's one problem. And then the other problem is that they, they do activate this dopamine response associated with sweetness. So, um, you know, we have on our taste buds, we have these sweet receptors. Mm-hmm. So when you eat sugar, you're activating the sweet receptor and there's this stimulation of pleasure in the brain that makes you like sugar. Mm-hmm. And so you like sweets a lot because of this sweet receptor in the tongue. Now, if you take saccharin or stevia or Splenda, you'll activate that sweet receptor and you get the dopamine response. Uh, and so you do get this pleasure response with sweetness. Now, if you knock out the sweet receptor, if you take an animal that has no sweet taste and, or a tasteless animal, it will still like regular sugar because it, it gets pleasure even if it can't taste it hmm. but the uh, artificial sugar won't won't cause any pleasure anymore the animal really doesn't care about artificial sweeteners if they can't taste the sweet but here's the problem the problem is is like if you switch over to diet drinks uh you know okay so that is that part is good you're not drinking sugar, regular sugar that's helping you for sure but you still are, are training yourself to love sweet food. And, and the problem is, um, is it comes back at you. You know, you, you order the cappuccino without the uh, whipped cream and sugar, but you still eat your cookie, uh, you know. Um, right. So it could lead to other, so other the, bad the, habits. Yeah. 
So the problem is, is it, it's still teaching you or trying to teach you to, to like sweets. So my recommendation is, you know, try to avoid diet drinks. Uh, try to avoid artificial sugars. If you really are craving for uh, artificial, I mean, for something sweet, I would recommend eating a natural fruit. That is so much healthier, okay? Mm. If, you know, on a rare occasion when you want to have a dessert, yeah, make a Splendid or, you know, one of these desserts, uh, you know, on a, on a rare, you know, you want to have birthday cake. Um, you know, there's my, my, uh, my wife, for example, makes these fantastic cakes uh, with artificial sugars. And we try not to eat them too often, obviously. But um, Is she using but, like... You know, like, I, like, yeah. I mean, what, it, birth, what, yeah, what is she... I'm sorry. Cakes. What is she using? Is she using like monk fruit or stevia or? Um... Well, she she likes stevia. Yeah. And she likes Splenda. And, um, you know, Splenda, has, you know, some people really don't like Splenda. But, um, it, you know, and uh, some of my friends who study things are, are kind of concerned about Splenda. But the, the literature, the actual scientific literature on Splenda is not really bad. There could be more done, but it's 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 not so bad. And there's there's an artificial sugar called allulose. Mm -hmm. It's a new one, and that one that one may be the safest of all. The only problem is you have to use large amounts. So you know most artificial sugars you use like one tenth or one twentieth the amount of sugar. The allulose you have to use almost you know the same amount. So mm -hmm. you're taking a lot of this. Uh, substance that we don't know that much about. So I'm a little little nervous about allulose, but all the data to date suggests it's pretty healthy. Now, I mean, relatively healthy compared to other other ones. Now, what about? Uh, I know in your book you talk about coffee. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. Bit, you know, so I got a coffee right here, Brian. There you go. Is it black or do you got a bunch of sugar? Yes, I, I put I put the tiniest amount of cream in it. I All mean, right. like, oh, that's fine. It's basically, it looks black, pretty black. Okay. And I know you um, actually talk positively a bit on coffee. So I, I'm sure a lot of people like to hear that. Yeah. So it turns out that coffee um, is, ep, you know, by epidemiology, it's associated with less diabetes. So one of the most striking findings is that people who drink five cups of coffee a day have 50% chance of getting diabetes compared to the average person, one half. So that's a big difference. So, wow. but you have to drink five cups a day. That's a lot. To fall into that category. Okay, so. I'm assuming um, that when you talk about coffee, let's just, they're not sweetening it with, they're not going to Starbucks and getting this big uh, concoction that's like a milkshake. Yeah, yeah, uh, don't, <laughs> we're not talking about a Frappuccino. We're not yeah. talking about, you know, a, you know, a caramel latte. Yeah, we're okay. talking about coffee. Okay, right. coffee. I get Americano, um, and and there's not much evidence that adding cream hurts or helps, but but there is very good evidence that adding sugar hurts. So um, yeah, so unsweetened coffee, uh, and uh, interestingly, it also reduces the risk of a high uric acid. It reduces the risk of gout and coffee caffeine really? has a metabolite that inhibits uric acid production and that uh and actually i put in a grant once to starbucks to try to 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 do this to see if they would be interested because 
uh, you know, you would think that they would want to know, be able to say, well, you know, our coffee can reduce the risk of, of diabetes. And here's the mechanism, because we don't, no one has published the mechanism, but it, it, it lowers uric acid. And our data suggests that uric acid is part of this biologic switch right. that makes you insulin resistant. So, and actually, we think that the strongest effect of uric acid is probably on uh, insulin resistance and raising blood glucose. So I believe that the reason that coffee is healthy is because it's affecting our the switch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and interesting, we have a mouse that is protected from obesity and diabetes, and it does, will not, it does not like sugar. Mm. But it loves coffee. It loves coffee. I think my dog likes coffee too. I one time <laughs> yeah. it was spilled and he licked it up. Um, but on the on the topic of uric acid, I just want to touch on that because yeah. I know yourself and Dr. Perlmutter talk a lot about that. And in the book, uh, increasing uric acid is obviously shown to uh, cause a lot of issues. I think above what you say, like five point five, is perhaps maybe is that. If someone's going to get yeah. the uric acid measured. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about this. So in, in a regular person on a Western diet, mm-hmm. if you have a uric acid of greater than five and a half, it starts to increase your risk significantly for high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, kidney disease, fatty liver, da-da-da-da-da. Okay, so it really is a risk factor. But uh, I do have to tell you that... Um, it's, it's main, the main problem of the switch is from fructose and, uh, and also from the conversion of glucose to fructose. So if you're on a low-carb diet, um, it's, you, you're blocking your ability to uh, activate the switch, largely. Act, you can still activate the switch with certain foods, and we can talk about it, but but basically, when you're in a low-carb diet or when you're intermittent fasting, you're removing the availability of glucose and fructose. And, um, and those are your two main mechanisms driving obesity, right? So, um, so that's why a low-carb diet works. That's uh, another reason intermittent fasting works. And, and so uh, what happens is in both of those situations, you can get is a rise in uric acid and the uric acid is going up. In this case, it's going up to probably help keep your glucose levels up. So if you're, if you're on a low carb or keto diet, um, you're not really getting any carbs. And so you have to make glucose from protein and from fat. And so we can make glucose from proteins and fats. We can make it from amino acids and we're, you know, it's it's called gluconeogenesis, but basically you can make glucose and a person who's on a keto diet, his glucose levels generally don't go down to 30 or 20. They usually, they, they stay okay because, um, you, you, you've learned other ways to keep your glucose level at a certain level. So your glucose is not really, uh, being available as a, as a big fuel to make energy, but you, you have enough around for the critical things you need. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, one of the problems is, is that, you know, to stimulate that gluconeogenesis, to stimulate the production of glucose in a low carb state, it seems that it probably needs a little bit of uric acid around. So 
Um, uh, you know, I, I haven't fully proven it, but we have a uh, fair amount of data supporting the fact that if you're on a keto diet uh, and your, your uric acid, it commonly will go to like seven. And whereas that would increase your risk for hypertension and obesity and diabetes, here it's actually maybe helping you be, to keep your glucose levels normal. Mm-hmm. So I, I would not lower your uric acid if you're on a keto diet uh, from seven to four with I thinking that you're going to reduce your risk for diabetes because the low-carb diet's reducing your risk for diabetes. But what you, you may actually need a little bit of uric acid to, to uh, help compensate for the fact that you don't have any carbs in your diet or very few carbs in your diet. So this is an important thing. So uric acid is almost always a bad guy, but it can be a good guy. It was a survival factor. Right. So if you're on a, on a thing where you're eating no carbs at all, um, you know, it's great because it helps you burn fat and all these things, but, it, you know, you do need some glucose, and, and the uric acid is probably having a, a function in the low-carb diet scene mm-hmm. to help with that. What, what about um, alcohol? Ah, uh, alcohol. Yeah. I, I, wanted, I, you I, know, yeah. I, I, I like beer. And I like wine, and uh, I spent most of my life having a glass of wine every night. Uh, and um, I try not to drink too much, but I do like wine. And, uh, you know, so uh, there's a big literature that says that, you know, drinking one glass of wine a day may actually be good for cardiovascular health. I mean, there's that New England Journal paper that said one to two glasses of wine a day, and you actually live longer than the average person. Um, and, uh, you know, if you get two is sort of like zero, one is like definitely a benefit. And if you drink more than two, uh, it's definitely not good for you. So I've always was thinking alcohol was probably not, you know, excessive alcohol is bad, but a little is not bad. However, um, not all alcohol is the same. So a lot of alcohol is mixed with sugar. And of course, that's the kiss of death in terms of sugar. And beer. Uh, you know, so you have a Manhattan or pina colada or margarita. They, they taste great, but um, you are giving yourself a sugar load. Right. And then there's, uh, unfortunately, there's alcohol can also be used to make uric acid and especially beer. And it's not just the, the alcohol, but the, the beer contains uh, brewer's yeast. And that is like... Um, it's converted to uric acid in the body. And when that happens, you can kind of activate the switch in the absence of fructose. Mm. So foods that really are great at raising uric acid, really strong ones, like beer is the number one. Uh, I mean, it causes uh, beer belly, uh, which is visceral obesity, abdominal obesity. It ca- makes the triglycerides go up, makes the blood pressure go up. I mean, it, does, it activates the switch. And right. we can show that it activates the switch. So beer, uh, you know, should kind of be viewed like a soft drink. The beer other problem. I was going to say beer and mixed drinks, right? Those yeah, two. Beer and mixed drinks are the two bad ones. Now, wine, wine is safer. Now, the bad, the worst news, Brian, is, you know, uh, there's been one paper published. We actually have a, a patent on it. We have uh, some other papers on it that are coming. 
but some alcohol, when you drink alcohol, some of that alcohol is activating the enzyme that converts glucose to fructose. Right. And so it's another way to activate the switch. It's not that the alcohol is turned into fructose. The alcohol activates an enzyme that converts glucose to fructose. So mm. it's the pretzel you're eating with the beer or with the wine. That now a little bit more of that pretzel is being converted to fructose in your body. So, mm. uh, and, and here's what's wild, Brian. Uh, there's uh, alcohol is known to cause liver disease. You, you're probably aware of that, that people who drink Fatty a lot liver. Can get neurosis, yeah. this terrible liver disease where they die from it. And people who eat a lot of sugar can also get fatty liver disease. And over time, that can cause cirrhosis. And the two have always looked alike. And Rob Lustig, our friend, has talked about how sugar is sort of like alcohol without the buzz because... Um, they both cause a craving. They both uh, cause can, can lead to this uh, obesity a little bit, and they both can cause fatty liver. Well, it turns out that the two are related more than even Rob was thinking. And what happens is uh, the liver disease you get from alcohol, you can block that in a mouse by blocking fructose. So that what happens is the liver, when you drink booze, you're actually making sugar in your body. You're making fructose that is causing the liver disease. Mm. And, you know, um, people who are alcoholic often love sugar and vice versa. The two are linked. And if you, you know, when I go on rounds at the hospital and if I have a patient with alcohol liver disease, I'll go into the room. Almost inevitably, they'll have a soft drink on their table because um, when they can't drink alcohol, that is what they want. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, they both can cause liver trouble. So I always recommend them to stop drinking the soft drinks and to drink more water. Mm. Um, and uh, but yeah, the alcohol, unfortunately, some of it can can activate the switch. So I still drink a glass of wine at night um, often, uh, but I'm aware that it 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 does activate the switch a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I try to drink it slowly and, <laughs> and uh, sip it, you know, like it was meant to be. Right. Um, and I still believe that, uh, you know, so one of the things when you learn is, you know, there are these things that activate the switch. But, you know, if you eat it slowly, drink a lot of water, you can, you can still, you, it isn't like you have to like quit drinking alcohol. And it isn't like you can never eat a piece of cake. Right. It's just that, you know, once you know what is good for you, what's not, the, the, the majority of the time you try to eat correctly and you do intermittent fasting and all these different things. And you can stay super healthy. And remember, when those energy factories are really strong and you can make them stronger with exercise and stuff, that, you know, when that's the case, you know, you can weather, uh, you, know, uh, you know, foods that may not be so good, you can weather them. Uh, easier yeah no this is all great advice and we could probably talk for another hour <laughs> um <laughs> but i i, I want to recommend your book because i think it's great and it talks about um at the end you talk a little bit about like your you know your switch diet and and yeah. and some things that people can do um but nature wants us to be fat 
Uh, is there anything else you want to leave us? I always ask my guests if, the, and I'll ask you this, if there's one tip that you'd give someone middle-aged that wanted to get their body back to what it once was back, maybe when they're in their thirties or, uh, you know, even forties, uh, what, what, what one tip would you give that individual? Well, I, I can I do two tips. You can give so two. Here's my, my first tip is, um, drink a lot of water. Uh, it turns out that water is underrated as, uh, as being beneficial. We can actually, exactly, drink six to 10 glasses a day. You know, don't drink a lot of water if you're a marathon runner uh, because you can over drink water and you can get water intoxicated. So when you, if you're doing things like marathons, just drink to thirst. But for the normal day, you drink six to 10 glasses of water. Eight, eight glasses is great. Mm. That's, and it will have a benefit. You'll, you'll be amazed. And my other recommendation is listen to Brian because <laughs> huh. you, you have a lot of really good advice and um, that, you know, things like intermittent fasting, ex exercise, staying in shape, you know, this has such a positive effect and um, exercise is, is as important as the diet. And, um, you know, the diet is what activates the switch but it's exercise which heals the mitochondria. Really good exercise is what keeps the, your energy factory strong. And um, so th that is so important. Uh, I can't emphasize it more. And um, it's not the burning of calories. It's forget it, you know, exercise, forget about it as a way to lose weight right. by uh, losing calories, burning calories. Use it as a system to keep your energy factories healthy, and that will help you lose weight. It's going to be from that right. where you get the benefit. Well, I appreciate that. You're actually the first guest to say that. <laughs> Listen to Brian on, on, on his tip and, and, drink, and drink lots of water. Is there anything, and, and, and this was just as, as a side, regarding water and not drinking it during meals? And, and maybe drinking it away from meals. I've had some guests on talk about that as far as with digestion and things like that. No, no. So the first thing is um, it, particularly if you're eating anything salty, we didn't get it into this, but salt right. actually activates the switch too. When you get thirsty from eating salt, you are activating the switch. And so what you want to do is you, if you're eating anything salty, you got to drink a lot of water with it. Okay. Um, and because you have to drink like, because I recommend six to 10 glasses a day, I recommend you drink a glass of water with every meal, but also drink a glass between meals. And um, it, there's benefits from both. You know, um, if, you, if you force yourself to drink a glass before you start eating, you can ensure that you're really gonna get to your, your, your goal over the day. Right. And if you're eating salt and things like that, and you dropped this serum sodium in your blood, you'll actually not activate the switch. So if you're going to have soup or, and we actually did studies where we did this, where we gave water with soup and so forth to, to show that you can block activation of the switch if you drink water with a meal, mm. but drink water between meals too. You know? Did you do so, any studies with apple cider vinegar? You know, I want to, <laughs> I really want to. Okay. okay. I, 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 maybe I will because um, there, there is something special seems like there's something special about that stuff. And um, I have some friends who believe in it. Well, I thought you were going to say I haven't seen a good science study to, to, to 
figure out how it's working. But maybe does it contain quercetin? You know, quercetin seems to be a very good uh, nutraceutical. It comes from apple leaves mm. uh, and apple skin. And I just wonder if it's in the apple vinegar. But yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I don't. I, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't think it has quercetin, but I think it has to do with. Um, I mean, I know that it's. It well, I don't know if it's proven studies, but a lot of people talk about how it can blunt the blood sugar response. Um, at, at, you know, you, you'd have it with a little bit of water before a meal. I thought that's what you're going to say to me when uh, how to protect it uh, yourself against turning the switch on when you have cake is a little bit of apple cider. I'm not promoting that, but I've heard uh, apple cider vinegar can help with blunting the sh- blood sugar responses. So, Well, I can learn a lot from a lot of people. and um, But, you know, what I tend to want to do is to do a scientific study, to, uh, both in animals and humans, mm. to, to really test it. Yeah, but, that would uh, be good. But I am intrigued. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, look out for his book. Is that the best? What's the best place for people to find you? Well, they can find me at drrichardjohnson.com. Drrichardjohnson.com. That's my website. Uh, It's a new website, but I got a lot of stuff on it. Um, And then the book's pretty much available from all the different regular book, you know, companies. Yeah. Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, thank you so much, Richard. This is um, this is a, this is great. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there, and you've chosen to listen to mine, and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at BrianGrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.